we had a sense of the sacred about it in the same way with the psilocybin. They became quests. So there was a real sense that whether it's through practices, circumstances, or substances, you have a kind of intention that you set for how you're going to work with that. With psilocybin in particular, where people can have very challenging experiences, they are also opportunities to learn to work with the mind in a different way, and also to recognize that these states are, at least for most of the time, very temporary, and therefore not to identify with them because this too shall pass. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. I don't know by what criteria National Geographic Society selects its six explorers for the millennium, but I imagine standards are fairly stringent. My guest in this episode, Ian Baker, earned a spot on that list for his extraordinary explorations in Asia, in particular through the Tsongpo Gorges of Tibet. He also earned the trust and friendship of the Dalai Lama, from whom he has gained much wisdom and clarity. Always the adventurer, Ian takes us on a profound journey that covers topics such as Tantric Buddhism, the Tibetan art of healing, psychoactive plant medicine, and his team's discovery of a Himalayan waterfall that had been the source of myth for more than a century, the daring details of which he recounts in his incredible book, The Heart of the World. Ian also discusses his forthcoming book that will detail his journeys with the alchemist wizards of Burma and their intimate relationship with Mercury. And what I found to be extremely fascinating, Ian also takes us inside numerous Himalayan caves where he has collectively spent many months in isolated meditation, including one three-month stint doing an esoteric practice prescribed by the Dalai Lama himself. In a world where most people turn outward for distraction every few seconds, Ian turns inward for months at a time for deep introspection and growth. Ian is the author of seven critically acclaimed books on Himalayan and Tibetan cultural history, environment, art, and medicine, including his most recent release, Tibetan Yoga, Secrets from the Source. Ian also leads private expeditions in India, Tibet, and Bhutan. This episode is deeply profound and enriching and has left me wanting more exposure to the teachings and wisdom of this remarkable man. Please enjoy this episode of Salish Wolf with Ian Baker. Ian, welcome to Salish Wolf. Thank you. It's great to be here. I can't thank you enough for doing this with me. It's such an honor to have you on the show. And I want to begin by acknowledging our mutual friend, uh, Daniel Reed, who is one of my most recent guests, and he 
speaks very highly of you. He referred me to you uh, to reach out for a podcast. And he also has written about you in his memoir, which Dan and I just talked about extensively in an episode that we just did together. And he writes about some of his journeys with you. And I've got to say, your journeys are like off the scale type of journeys. What and I only I've only scratched the surface on what you've done as an adventurer and explorer, but I just want to say wow, it's incredible. Mm. Well, thank you. Any, I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing the interview you did with Dan, which I haven't unfortunately had a chance to do yet, but that's definitely top of my list after all of this. Great. Well, one thing that I have just done over the last month or so is I've really gone deep into your book, The Heart of the World, which is an account of your journey into what you call Tibet's Lost Paradise. Uh, It is an incredible book. It received rave reviews. It takes the reader on an adventure like none other. And your motivation for adventuring to me is is really perhaps unique and also very commendable and it seems to not be in any way attached to ego you really seem to be adventuring for the sake of connecting deeper to planet and people and culture and you've done some things that nobody else has ever done before And that just never seems to be the driver to get you to do these things. And you put yourself in harm's way, life or death situations, which seems to be on a regular basis. And I just want to say, reading that book, The Heart of the World, was such a joy for me. And I thought maybe we could start by hearing about your reflections on Tibet, your passion for what drove you there and kept you going year after year despite all the hardships that you encountered every time in life or death situations so if you don't mind talking a bit about that no no certainly um yeah so the book you cited uh, the heart of the world was a it's it's a it's a difficult book to categorize and bookstores have always had a hard time they don't know whether to put it in mountaineering whether to put it in literary um, you know, in literature or, or nature writing, um, sport, it, 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 and or Buddhist studies, it ends up in different categories in different, um, bookstores. And I suppose that's because back when people, you know, when we could access bookstores, now everything of course is mostly online still, at least where I am. Um, but the point is that it was a very interdisciplinary, uh, book in the sense that it covered, uh, a whole range of my activities over several decades. And uh, those focused on uh, when I went at the age of 19 uh, for the first time to, to Nepal, that was in the 1977. And uh, I went actually on a college semester abroad program where we had to choose a particular uh, subject uh, that we were going to study intensively. And Nepal at that time was, you know, very much, uh, you know, it was very remote. It wasn't what happened in the 80s and 90s where it became a real, very popular destination for, for people to visit. It was not even that easy to get to. But I was, at that time, I was studying, I was majoring in, in um, studio art and I wanted to learn traditional Tibetan painting. That's actually what, um, you know, I chose as my sort of 
you know, the only way the way I could get college credit uh, for for this trip that I made to Nepal at that time. And in the process of that, I learned that you know the you know you paint these Buddhist deities. It's very programmatic. It's very very set. There's a specific proportions, color schemes, et cetera, et cetera, that are all um, in a certain sense prescribed. But there was a lot more latitude with with the surrounding landscape of the deities, which to some degree reflects the nature of those those tantric deities that are being painted. So in that process, um, and I was I was studying with a painter. Kapa called them way up in, in the mountains, not far from in the Everest region of Kumbu. And, um, and I was asking all about the symbolism of the, of the, um, the landscape, of the, you know, the waterfalls, the mountains, the, um, and there seemed to be kind of a circuitry from the, the melting glaciers that you could see in some of his paintings and to turning into waterfalls, turning into pools of water, mists and clouds. And, so he was sort of happy that I was asking about all that because it, it did indicate on one level kind of the cycle of nature, let's just say in, in, in terms of a precipitatory cycle on one level. But then as he then referred to, he said, yes, but this is just, he said, that's just the outer nature or an inner nature that's actually very symbolic of certain kinds of tantric yogic practices in which you know, you're working with the central channel and the waterfall representing the descent of of nectar, meaning essentially, um, you know, whatever we might think that to be, um, you know, uh, could even be endogenous DMT or melatonin from the pineal gland, all kinds of things which we can understand it to be today, but which were literally understood in the Tibetan tradition as being dutsi, which means literally this descent of nectar, which resulted from certain kinds of internal practices, particularly tumo or the inner fire. So that was all being in, uh, so we that excited me a lot to see that this kind of hidden symbolism was inherent um, within the landscape. And so I became very, very interested in the landscape painting tradition and to what degree Though that kind of hidden symbolism was conscious on the part of uh, particular Tibetan artists, and to what degree perhaps that was just something unique to to uh, to to the painter or a few others, perhaps that I had had the great fortune to study with. But uh, in the process of that, um, you know, there were some of these landscapes that looked very paradisical, and I said, you know, and I refer, and I you know had been studying Tibetan. Uh, history and literature. And I said, well, are, are these, do these refer to kind of these Buddhist um, uh, pure lands, you know, these shinkam as they're called in Tibetan, kind of a paradisical land. And he said, well, which are, which I understood to be kind of like places like Shambhala, they're, they're kind of meditative states that are depicted in, in geographical form. He said, well, yes, but these places uh, also exist, you know, on a physical level well, as well in geographically. And so because we were way up in the high Himalayas and he pointed out over a ridge, for example, of Amadablam, which was um, directly south from his home. And he said, yeah, and for example, there's a hidden land, this place called the Beyu, the hidden land over, you know, behind that mountain. But, you know, it's very, very difficult, you know, to get to people try to go, they never come back. Uh, but, you know, whether they don't come back because they find paradise or because they die trying. Uh, anyway, all of that was as a 19 year old who had come to Nepal with a background in mountaineering and rock climbing, which was my passion was extremely exciting. So the very fact that these were difficult places to get to with an uncertain outcome made it extremely appealing. So it was also on that, that college semester in 1977 that I also met my a teacher who became my teacher right up until just a few years ago when he passed away at the age of 103. 
and um, Chatra Rinpoche, and I, who had spent lots of times in uh, time in solitary retreat high in the Himalayas, in Tibet, and I asked him about these hidden lands, and uh, you know if there were Buddhist texts that he could refer me to that would describe them and how to get to some of them. And then he just, just looked at me and he said, can you spend a month alone? And I said, well, yes, I could, if that was, you know, if there was a good reason for it. And he goes, well, when you have a month free, come back and then I will send you to one of these hidden lands, these Bayou, and then you will, and you will stay there and then you will know what they are. You won't have to ask me, you'll know for yourself. <laughs> so that was kind of my challenge. Um, at that you know critical age to um which i did of course i was extremely excited i was at that time you know in this sort of juggling of multiple worlds i was doing a i was doing a course in in uh, comparative literature at oxford university in england so um but when i finished that i came back and i was in, in nepal and presented myself and uh, he was very happy and i remind, reminded him of what he challenged me for too and so that began this long apprenticeship over many years where he would send me to different caves and hidden lands and and uh you know the experiences that arose in those contexts became the basis for a kind of apprenticeship uh and teachings that he gave me and practices that i therefore did but all of it was in this context of a kind of wilderness um context you know i was never attracted to to monasteries or a monastic lifestyle any of those things which just and nor was my teacher nor was chaturimpashe he was very much of the yogic disposition and i think he kind of enjoyed the fact that i was um, always ready to go into a farther away hidden land or a cave so all of that just was a, a long way of saying that um that led to there was a chapter, as you probably saw, towards the beginning of the Heart of the World, called A Curriculum of Caves, in which uh, I, I uh, wrote about that kind of early apprenticeship that led eventually to hearing about this hidden land of Pemuka, this hidden land of the Lotus, at the far eastern edge of the Himalayas, uh, in eastern, eastern Tibet. And um, when I finally had the chance to go there, uh, it just that became an obsession. I went back every year, uh, sort of trying to find as as also as the book describes Chaturimashe described hidden lands as the texts do as having outer inner secret and innermost secret dimensions and so that itself became this ongoing uh quest to travel to you know to find my way into um or lose myself into the innermost sanctum of that hidden land of Pemaka, which was on the on just on a simple geographical level one of the most extraordinary places on the planet just in terms of botanical diversity land you know uh, you know just just absolutely awe-inspiring place that was at the same time very difficult to get to on every level from the political to the um to the geological to the yeah, to the physical so anyway that that was just a, a bit of an introduction to sort of what led to um the experiences at the heart of the world chronicles yeah well before we go on from there I want to hear more about the caves and maybe just your first 30-day experience in a cave because what what I find about your writing at least in this book is if I read between the lines I am imagining some of the most challenging circumstances that you write about as just a slight nuisance or inconvenience 
And so I know there's so much more that so many more layers that you could have gone into about really the hardship, physical, mental, emotional. And I'm just curious about your first experience or any further experiences of self-isolation in caves and what you gained from doing that. Sure. Yeah. So the first cave experience, if you will, which I was extremely thrilled and excited about. So Chatram Shea sent me off with a cloth bag filled with um, barley powder. And, you know, basically that was my diet, my staple of my diet. And I, of course, had brought some other, like, you know, it was a several day trek up to where he was at that time in the mountains. And I had some dried, you know, I had some dried vegetables, I had lemons, so I wouldn't get scurvy. <laughs> I had a, a bunch of stuff. Quite a lot. And, and I also had, a, I had a lot of spirulina algae, interestingly. Um, so I had sort of my survival food, which I used and supplemented. I don't think many people eat sampa, which is the Tibetan barley power with, with, with spirulina uh, algae mixed in, but that was my staple every morning. And, uh, you know, there were moments, certainly the cave was very shallow. Uh, so when it poured with rain, it was late in the monsoon season uh, when I first got there. So it was really, it got really wet if, the, if there was any wind along with the water. There was also a lot of this matted um, not, uh, grass in there, which I didn't, at the time, didn't really um, know what that was. I cleared it all out because it was kind of smelly. And then I only found out later when I came back after a couple of months and saw Chatur Rinpoche. And he said, first thing he asked me was, did you meet the bear? And I said, what do you mean the bear? He said, well, there was a bear living in that cave before you arrived. I just wondered whether, you know, it it came back or whether I said, no, I must have found another place. But I think, yeah, its bed was there, but I moved it. And, uh, I, I brought my proper camping mattress and all of that and a down sleeping bag as, you know, as one would in such circumstances. But it was, yeah, so it was an amazing period. Um, and he'd said to just stay for a month. And then... Um, you know, and I'd asked for special teaching, you know, what kind of meditation I should do while I was there. This, that was also very, very interesting for me when I look back on it. And he said, you know, he said, do what you already know and do what you know how to do. And then, you know, we'll talk about your practice when you come back. But I was really, you know, I thought, wow, this is, you know, going off to this place. There must be some special kind of practice and meditation I should do that would bring me into a, a deeper kind of experiential unity with 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 the hidden land and all of that and he, you know he he saw me sort of hungering for some special esoteric practice or teaching so he it was it was very interesting so he sort of picked up some of this samba this is the 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 um roasted barley flour that's a staple for the tibetan diet and he just sort of took some out of his bowl which he'd been eating uh there's a it's a Tibetans call it puck, where you take the the samba and you sort of it's mixed with butter and hot water or tea, and you kind of make it into balls that you eat. But he actually fashioned it into this kind of elongated object that he then stuck on this small. You know, we were sitting on the floor, but there was a small little folding table between us, and he put it there and he looked at me, and, he, and then he picked up and then he got another piece of this samba and he put until there were three together. So I figured this was probably going to be you know, a, a practice that I should do as what would be called Torma in the Tibetan tradition as offerings to the local protector spirits or something like that, that he, you know, was suggesting that I could do while I was there, but not at all. It was, you know, it was basically a trick in the best sense. It was like, he said, that's the way to put your three rocks when you make your, 
you know, when you boil your water for your tea, uh, make sure the three rocks are like that and that they're completely stable <laughs> and, and then don't spill uh, so the pot won't fall over and you put out your fire. Now, okay, now go. So that was it. That was the final, the final teaching. <laughs> and, um, but part of that, it just made it. So the whole point was that you, at least the way he taught was that you experience your own ground of your own being. And so the, rather than being filled up with, with, um, you know, esoteric culturally specific practices, even, um, it was really about stripping those away so that you are kind of confronted with this very, very elemental existence that then supports, you know, the kinds of deep engage, you know, discovery, if you will, of depths of consciousness and of the subconscious that, you know, our usual ways of living tend to occlude. And uh, that was certainly, you know, the experience that I had was during that time I went through uh, practices otherwise that I had been given to do, not by Chaturamashe, but I thought, you know, this is the place I was going to do them. And um, yeah, so I just went through that whole, whole process. And, um, and so there were, as you sort of indicated, there are moments of total frustration as to, because one, one of the, the conditions of going up, he says, you know, don't take anything, don't take any books, don't take anything to, to write on. So the whole idea was to be sort of thrown into your mind uh, so that you had no, uh, uh, no distraction whatsoever. And so I didn't have any reading material, no writing material, and just there. And then that meditation became sort of the natural uh, phenomena. And in that process, it allowed for, you know, there was a, a raven that came every day to the front of the cave and sat on this sort of tr dead tree that was in front. And, you know, that seemed more and more to have a, a kind of communication occurring. There were strange meteorological events that occurred while I was there that, I, you know, I have no way to account for, you know, in these sort of fireballs that appeared swirling in front of the cave once when I was meditating. So very, which were at first frightening. I had absolutely no idea, you know, what, what this could be. And it was a perfectly clear night. And I thought first they were, you know, since I'd stayed over the month, I thought they were, you know, maybe flashlights or torches from uh, monks or something that Chaturamshe might've sent out to, to get me or to check on me. Because what happened is that when the month was up, I was having sort of, <laughs> sort of such experiences that um, I didn't want to go down, you know, so I, um, and I had, the only thing I had left was some lemon, lemons and spirulina, basically for another, I think it was about a week or 10 days, I just uh, lived on that, and, um, and it was wonderful, and just sort of, when I did come down, it was kind of like floating down, kind of half ethericized, because I hadn't really eaten anything solid for so long. Um, but the overall experience was just, you know, was wonderful. So, you know, there was never, yeah, I know a lot, you know, people go, you know, hardship, but I, I felt like Robinson Crusoe sometimes more than I did as a budding yogi, just in the sense that it was about trying to sort of, you know, make a, a solid base camp using and with the available resources. Um, but it was at the same time, an incredible, uh, like dropping into the deep end of the mind. And um, that led to you know, a lot of experiences that then uh, what became the basis for the further practices that I did after when into, by discussing those with, with my with Chatra and Pache. In this experience, so you weren't able to bring writing material or reading material, were you able to actually leave the cave 
to explore, for distraction, or what was the practice to stay in the cave mm-hmm. for 30 or 40 days and just yeah, be there? It, it was an extremely steep mountainside with like a little ledge going over to the cave. So there wasn't like you could kind of go off for a walk in the woods. It was really, really treacherous and precipitous in every direction. And uh, it had never really been discussed as whether or not I should leave the cave or not. I had to go out slightly because to get water because it was about a hundred meters, but a very precarious, like almost like a ledge to go to a very, very um, trickling stream uh, where I could, could fill up water that I would then boil for, for tea. Um, and uh, or for just hot water to drink and um, but other than that I didn't really make any excursion because there really was nowhere to go <laughs> on the one hand. For someone like you who has come from a mountaineering and a rock climbing background and now your diet is very limited to say the least were you worried about your physicality at all were you trying to exercise or I, I can only imagine you were losing weight and were you okay with that? Yeah, I, I was losing a lot of weight. I was, um, I didn't worry about, um, I mean, it was enough physical activity. Just I had, you know, I did have to cut wood, firewood for the, for, for keeping the fire going, going and getting the wood from, I'm sorry, getting the water from the stream. Uh, just, kind of everyday activity uh there was physical activity in that but i also understand you know, i felt that for a month i uh you know i was in very very good shape in those days of course i'm walking up in that I was in my 20s and um so i didn't i wasn't concerned about specifically having a uh, a physical uh exercise or regime i mean i have in other retreats and other times then i've, I've been much more engaged with physical practices and um yeah but on that particular retreat i just decided to throw myself into that particular regimen and just to see what would happen yeah i imagine for a lot of people it would be challenging to be in isolation for that long for you for you as a young man did anything come up in any of your isolated cave experiences any shadows that you had to work through or any traumas i'm just curious about that experience for you yeah so for that that first cave retreat there was nothing traumatic at all actually it was just really elation you know it was just so exciting you know to you know what what sort of was emerging and the sense of going you know a deeper sense of reality and perception etc etc but so the second retreat the second cave retreat that Chatra sent me to which is a in, in another hidden land called Kimalong also up on the Tibetan border more remote, more wild, and stayed at that cave retreat also was to be a month. But that was, and it was a different set of practices that I was doing at that point. Um, and um, let me just, let me think backwards. I'm sorry. The, so the second retreat, I was, I was about to talk about the third retreat. So the second cave retreat was also further up in the same hidden land of Yomo, uh, where then Chatrasimhi sent me the next summer. And that, that was really extraordinary because I was doing a more intensive practice at that time. And that led to a real kind of breakdown between outer and inner reality, you know, where I would, I would at night, you know, I'd finish my practice, but then I'd wake up in the middle of the night 
and I'd like wake up into a visionary where I was doing the next stage of the practice in the dream, but then I'd wake up and it was like a vision instead of a dream. When I would go down to the stream to get the water, uh, I would hear voices, <laughs> these female voices calling me. It was, uh, you know, sort of dakinis and ankle bells, I mean, really strange. And I'd keep stopping and turning around, you know, this sense of, you know, am I going mad or have, is it in fact, this is exactly what happens in the hidden land where you're in a multi-verse that is, you know, in a sense, expressing itself um, through our own consciousness when we are receptive to that or, or, you know, very directly tuning into that, which is the whole purpose of being there. So to that on that second retreat was, was extraordinary where it really was almost like, you know, what would have considered in under ordinary circumstances, a kind of madness, hearing voices, visions. Um, and again, very, yeah, some strange physical uh, reactions, but, you know, nothing, I can't say it, not nothing unpleasant, but, but certainly on one level disconcerting because you kind of felt like everything was unraveling. But of course, that's the point. So in that way, that none of that worried me. Um, and the practice also that I was doing kind of accommodated that because it had a kind of psychodrama component to it. So one could learn to be able to uh, distinguish these kinds of experiential states, which are called Tibetan Yam, or they're, they're meditative states that arise, and the, the Rigpa, or this kind of, you could say, base consciousness, awareness that, uh, in a way, is the, is the space in which all experiences, uh, phenomenological experiences, arise. So at any moment, one could, you know, with familiarization with that state of, of consciousness, um, just tune into that and in a way disengage from any kind of identification with adventitious uh, mental or sensory states so that 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 was always there and that in a certain sense is that was the takeaway from an experience like that is no, no matter how bad things get how frightening how you know terrifying how anger inducing um you know that's it's it's our we have choice in terms of how we we um we react, or let's say react is even the wrong word, but how we respond to those kinds of circumstances are, in a way, they ultimately become totally options. You know, in other words, we don't have to succumb to fear, we don't have to succumb to anger, we don't have to succumb to desire. You know, we can appreciate all of those kinds of um, emotions that arise and just look at them and look at what are the the extenuating circumstances under which those those emotions arise, um, but we don't have to engage with them per se. And that was certainly, I would I'd say for me, the very strong takeaway from the second uh, cave retreat, which was like, no, it's like things that would cause fear. You can laugh, you know, and anger the same way. It just almost becomes not amusing is the wrong word, but um, but in a literal sense of that word, etymologically, to amuse is, has the same root as muse, which is the, is in, as a source of inspiration as we have with the muses. So to be amused is actually to be inspired um, by an event or a circumstance and therefore not to be under, ultimately under its sway, not to be controlled by it. Oh, there's so much to be gleaned just from that alone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was, that's great. Had you experienced prior to this 
any of I think the later endeavors you would have with psychoactive plants? Uh, yeah, I would say, um, yeah, the relationship, let's say, with psychoactive plants is also, of course, very good training for these same kind of experiences. You know, I mean that, you know, so certainly, you know, I went to college in the 1970s, so as any any good American student would, <laughs> you're exposed to these things, uh, and they became, you know, an, a very important part of one's extracurricular educational program, um, and one learned tremendous amounts from particularly I found, you know, from psilocybin and all of these things were, were amazing opportunities to, to learn about the mind, to learn about how to engage with the mind. I was also that time in my life where I was doing intensive amount of rock climbing, which is about purposely putting yourself into very dangerous life-threatening situations intentionally and learning to control the mind under such dangerous circumstances. So in so doing, one learns to control and work with the mind. And that also would apply to experiences where one would be doing peyote as we did, in, but in traditional context, well, semi-traditional, let's say with the sweat lodge and with someone who would live with Lakota Sioux Indians, that was my introduction to, to peyote in college. So all of these were extremely, so there wasn't just recreation. Fast, you know, we do several days of fasting sometimes before the first peyote trip, although that isn't even traditionally what Native Americans would do. It was just we had a sense of the sacred about it. And the same way with the psilocybin, we had kind of, you know, was, we made, they became quests. And um, so there was a real sense that when one is, has, you know, whether it's through practices, circumstances, or substances, which are essentially those three different, uh, let's say, situations in which such experiences arise, you, you have a kind of intention that you set for how you're going to work with that. You know, so with psilocybin in particular, you know, where people can have, you know, bad experiences, not bad, but just say very challenging experiences. Uh, they are also opportunities uh, to learn to work with the mind in a, in, a, in a different way, and also to recognize that these states are at least, you know, for for most of the time, they're they're very temporary, and therefore not to identify with them because this too shall pass. And uh, so I think that that this is in because you mentioned in some of your previous podcasts working with people doing therapeutic uh, work with psychoactive substances, and certainly, yeah, there are many many dimensions in which it relates to spiritual practice. There's so much research now that's emerging about showing how the kind of the um, incredible I mean, increased interconnectivity just in the wiring of the brain that occurs in psilocybin. And it also, a very, a very recent report that's come out in which, um, in a way, it, it, it suppresses the, 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 the part of the brain that is, we relate most. And I don't remember the specific part. It's just an article that I just uh, bookmarked to read, but about this, about kind of curtailing the ego. So it's a way, it's a, an induction and an introduction to and an entrainment into a state of consciousness in which the ego is less present because there's a state of interconnectivity. Therefore, not only, you know, internal wiring in the brain, but with nature, with other people, with other beings, with non with the non-human sentient uh, beings. So there's this deep sense, I think, of of just connectivity that is, is um, you know, one of the gifts of the plant medicines. And that's certainly something that arises through different meditative practices, which I think to some degree historically may 
and that's a very controversial view, but there, there's certainly many who have put forward the view that a lot of the yogic practices and meditative practices are simply to try to, are substitutes for the kinds of states that Soma, for example, in the, in the Rig Veda was, was, you know, said, now we have drunk Soma, we are, you know, we're participating in the realm of the gods. Uh, and then when Soma, uh, when that ritual was not available, when these substances were not available, certainly, um, yogic practices were ways of, of trying to access some of these same kind of exalted states. And in particular, when these kind of substances could be combined with yogic practices, this is, I think, where a whole nother level emerges. And I think this is some very exciting research that's going on now in looking at how microdoses um, can be paralleled by micro practices. So in other words, if we take certain kinds of uh, mindfulness practices, if you will, uh, and apply them, within a state of, of, of appropriate uh, dosages of, of psychoactive substances, it can really lead to extraordinary breakthroughs uh, in, in the same way that otherwise guided medita uh, guided psychedelic sessions uh, can bring right. the kind of results they do. Yeah. And in your experience, in your pursuit of going into these caves and in your work with Shacha Rinpoche, mm -hmm. where you exploring that interconnectivity more deeply is that what you were yeah hoping to, to um, achieve well the interconnectivity certainly i mean i think you know whatever one's trying to achieve on the buddhist path i mean if if, if buddha the word that the buddha used for himself when he was asked who he was because his her his persona as a prince had sort of dissolved in the process of his own so-called enlightenment experience and he and you know, return to his own essence. There was no longer any kind of personal identity associated. And he was just a Buddha, you know, awake, a state of wakefulness uh, or awakened. And that's certainly, you know, what the meditation practice is that he back engineered. I mean, because he was following, you know, his own, he went through many, many different diverse meditative and yoga traditions of his time and then just sat under the tree and you know his enlightenment experience and then when he was asked you know how it was achieved you know he didn't follow the eightfold path he didn't follow the four noble truths those were kind of back engineered ways that then became i mean of course these weren't even written down until more than 200 years after his passing by followers who preserved an, an oral tradition um, but <clears throat> those then became the foundations of what we understand to be the Buddhist tradition, which are those people following as much as it's possible even to follow the example of the historical Buddha, who, you know, of course, began his life as a very, very privileged, very wealthy <laughs> scion of a, of, a, of a princely family and just found that, you know, by the late 20s, he really had a very limited experience of life because he'd been basically brought up in a pleasure grove and that just really wasn't doing it for him anymore. And so he left and went off on the a wandering ascetic life. And that led to the kind of realizations that as, as we know, went beyond, you know, the, to solve this problem of, of you know, aging, sickness, death, and uh, the sufferings, uh, suffering of life that, uh, so, yeah. So in a certain sense, I, you know, my, my engagement with these practices, um, you know, to some degree, when we make that, you know, the, literally what the Buddha did was, you know, the cutting off of the hair and going off into the, to the forest to meditate um, is in a sense recapitulated by anyone who 
truth and you know, truly engages in the Buddhist path, uh, in the sense that you turn one turns away from the conventional ideals and objectives of life uh, in order to to explore this greater possibility of waking up to to something which is ultimately transpersonal. Um, so you know, more than self-actualization is actually self-transcendence. And that certainly is, is you know, what we understand to have been Prince Gautama, the Buddha's own experience. So that was certainly what inspired me uh, through the example of Chatra Rinpoche in particular to, um, to go off to these caves to do. Um, I, and that interconnectivity is more of a model, I think that we, we you know, has only emerged in the last few years, really, as a result of the long-term studies at John Hopkins University and Medical University and elsewhere to see, you know, what is actually, what are substances like psilocybin and, um, and ergot and whatever versions of that might be, uh, how are they, or ayahuasca, how are they affecting the brain? And to some degree, that's a partial uh, mapping you, uh, corollary to what's happening subjectively which of course is an expansion of consciousness. And then we can see a kind of neuro, neurological, uh, neural uh, analog of that uh, in, uh, in what happens to the brain in, in those states. Uh, but there's a lot more happening, obviously, in the heart. There's a lot happening in the endocrine system. There's a lot happening in the cardiovascular system. Um, and we know so much more about the subtle body than yogis ever knew in the past. So there's also you know these fascinating... Uh, research that's going on now with the human interstitium, which is now recognized as essentially, it's, you know, it's giving a, a basis and uh, for for the models of traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, and this whole idea of the subtle the subtle channels. We now have the interstitium, which is you know, interpenetrating every aspect of the body and into the mic the microvasculature. So, and it also has a, its own uh, piezo piezoelectricity, which um, is completely separate from the electricity of the central nervous system. So we begin to understand, you know, a little bit more about what words such as chi or prana are, you know, what, what are the anatomical physiological analogs, if you will, of those experiential states that have been described as, as, as primordial, you know, as chi or, 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 um, or prana. So I think it's very exciting that we you know that in a certain sense science, medical science is catching up with some of these intuitions of the yogic sciences. And psilocybin can be very, you know, and other substances like that can, as we know, very used very originally in spiritual context, ayahuasca, obviously in ritual context, you know, even substances like coca, you know, the, the, the source of cocaine was used very much in traditional yogic context among the Kogi and other traditional tribes in South America. Yeah. Ian, you write a lot about Tantra and Tantric practices. And I think that as a concept is very commonly maybe misunderstood in mm -hmm. Western cultures. Yep. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a bit on what Tantra and Tantric Buddhism mm -hmm. are. And are they is, is Tantric Buddhism the same as Tantra? No, uh, not okay. exactly. Well, so, yeah. So, so Tantra is... Um, is a Sanskrit word that means literally a treatise. And so there are tantras, which are treatises in, um, in, in Indian tradition that have nothing even necessarily to do with either Hindu or Buddhist doctrine. So they can just be a treatise on something. Uh, 
And, uh, but in the context in which it's used in Buddhism, which is the same context in which it's used in Shaivite uh, Hinduism, uh, it's referring to texts, uh, you could say spiritual, religious, ritual texts that in the context of Buddhism expanded upon, and that's what the root word of tan, tantra is to, is to, is tan, is to, to expand. The, the same word is used etymologically in Indian language to refer to the warp and woof of a loom. So it's this, um, this idea of the warp and the woof, this tantra. In the same way, we have the Buddhist sutras, which is the same uh, root of the word suture that we have in English. It, you know, when you suture something, it's a thread that ties things together. So the Buddhist sutras right. were the teachings of the Buddha uh, preserved as sutras. And they were literally in palm leaf manuscripts that were often had, were, were, were sewn together. So that's the thread. So the tantras, uh, were literally more of a tapestry that, that expanded. It took the, the, the sutras and expanded upon them with um, a range of ritual and yogic practices that were never part, never included, uh, never part of the earlier Buddhist teachings uh, that were embodied in the, or preserved in the sutras. And at the same time that these Buddhist uh, tantras emerged that were uh, speaking about ritual practices and yogic practices, including sexual sexual practices, but not in any way limited to that. That was just part of this general expansion to, to bring Buddhist practice out from the exclusive domain of renunciate monks and nuns and actually show its relevance for not even just forest-dwelling, mountain-dwelling yogis, uh, but also for householders, as something that could be, you know, didn't didn't depend upon the conventional renunciate ideal. So I'll speak about that in a moment. But the point being is that these tantras that developed in in uh, in Buddhism, basically from the first ones appearing kind of in the sixth century, probably with the Guya Samaja Tantra, uh, that but particularly in the eighth, uh, ninth, eleventh, um, and twelfth centuries, um, this was happening simultaneously as the as tantras were emerging in the Shaiva tradition, the Shaiva and the Shakta, meaning the Shiva Shakti uh, tradition of Hinduism. Um, and these were parts of, uh, actually, the, the Kaula, I mean, it gets quite esoteric, but there was a particular you know, school of Shaivism called Kaula, which was literally means the clan. It was a very, very close-knit community with the guru, the practitioners, male-female practitioners. Um, there were sexual rites that were used to induce states of bliss um, by controlling those kind of physiological states. One could enter into states of consciousness that were not only filled, you know, bliss-filled, but that allowed one to actually have an experience of being. So we know that very common term used in Hindu Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, Nandu Vedanta, called uh, Sat Chitananda. So Sat meaning kind of truth, Chit consciousness, and uh, and Ananda meaning bliss. So this experience of, of being, of bliss, of, of, uh, and of the, the essence of consciousness in a transpersonal state, which is intrinsic to the Vedanta tradition even, which is not even Shaivite, it's, uh, it's associated with Vishnu in the Hindu tradition. But we have an exact kind of counterpart of that in the Hindu Tantras, sorry, in the Buddhist Tantras. So to try to kind of, <laughs> I threw out a lot of sort of ideas there, but the basic point of the, when the Buddhist Tantras first emerged, let's say in the 6th, 7th, and up until you know, 11th century, this happens simultaneously with the emergence of tantras in the Shaiva, uh, in the tantric Shaivist tradition. 
And so they both have, in terms of methods, particularly working with this idea of the Kundalini, this, this activating this kind of primordial energy within the, the psychophysi uh, psychophysiology of the body. Uh, these are, are completely parallel uh, traditions of this in the tantric Hinduism and therefore in tantric in the Hindu tantras and in the Buddhist tantras. So basically Hin uh, tantric Buddhism was heavily influenced. There's no doubt about that um, by the Hindu uh, tantric tradition particularly from the 10th and 11th century, but before that as well. And that's also because of the places that, according to the Buddhist tradition, the Tantras first emerged in a, an area, place called Udiana. That's where, according to the texts themselves, they say this is where they originated. So where's Udiana? Udiana is now in an area that's in now, uh, now in, in Pakistan, Northwest Pakistan. Um, it's the same area of Udiana where there was not only very, very, we know that from early Chinese travelers uh, who were there already fifth, sixth, seventh century and later uh, where there was both Shaivism and Buddhism. So the, tr the traditions merged in many ways and influenced each other. Uh, but what was very, very interesting is that in the same area of the Swat Valley of what's now Pakistan, there were pre-existing traditions of Dionysus there. This was on the ancient Silk Roads. And it's very, very evident from the earliest Buddhist art of Gandhara uh, even you know very early uh, you know, part of this you know the, the millennium that um, you can see Buddhist sculptures for example with Dionysian kind of scenes of drinking wine and lovemaking and uh, amorous scenes of one kind or another that we associate very much with the tantric Buddhist tradition of integration of substances integration of passions on the path and uh, the Dionysian traditions that were evident there, we also have records of those from Greece, you know, they had to deal with mass dances, with, with uh, a certain kind of self-transcendent self intoxication. So all these things became actually large parts of the, uh, the Tantric Buddhist tradition as they were already within the Tantric Shaiva tradition. Um, this kind of cult of ecstasy that we associate with both Shiva and Dionysus was also part of the Buddhist um, tantric tradition, although the Buddhist tradition in a way tried to a little bit tone it down somewhat. It was all about bliss and it was certainly about sexual practices, um, but it was always about using that bliss as a way to gain insight into the fundamental nature of reality, which they describe as shunyata, in other words, as empty of any kind of abiding, you know, that it's, it's a relational reality. It's not a reality made up of, of things. It's composite. It's constructed. It doesn't mean it's an illusion. That's, that's an illusion in itself. It just means that everything is composite. It's, it's interconnected. It's shape-shifting. It's, it's provisional. So shunyata, because we know from the Heart Sutra, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. It doesn't mean that one is privileged over the other, but it just means it's a relational reality. So this idea of emptiness as being some kind of great sort of nihilistic abyss uh, and void is also very, very mis, uh, misunderstood uh, because it's really just about this incredible sense of, of everything. Is, it's, an, it's the infinite potential with David Bohm, of course, you know, the... The, uh, the quantum physicist that was very influential even in the Dalai Lama's thinking speaks about. And I think that's what the Tantras also are speaking about is this infinite potential that our human embodiment offers us to explore. And therefore, why would we, you know, we can 
explore that without confining ourselves to you know, the 220 plus vows that a Buddhist monk or nun has to take in order to follow the monastic path. So in Tantra, these are treatises, the sutras, as you said, are kind of threads that weave. Do they have, do either of these have anything to do with mantras or is it just a similar sounding term? Well, there's yantra, mantra, tantra. So these were three very similar <laughs> okay. sounding words that are often uh, referred to, especially in Hindu tantra. Uh, so as you know, yantras are symbolic. Um, they're based, uh, you could say, the basis of mandalas. Uh, in the sense that they're a kind of uh, diagram that is can be used uh, to bring one into a, a meditative state of con a concentrated meditative state in the same way that mantra. Mantra literally comes from the word. Um, so yantra is, off, is most directly translated as a device, but it really does refer mostly to a diagram, but it can be three-dimensional. Whereas mantra, man means is comes from manas, meaning mind. So a mantra is to protect the mind, is to kind of protect the mind from discursive thought by a, a re repeated uh, syllable or, or a string of syllables. So a mantra, whether it's you know the conventional Buddhist, you know, Omani or you know the infinite ones, or even the single syllable mantras, uh, you know that we use more in the Hindu tradition, you know, kling, hing, hing, you know, just as a way of, in a certain sense, of short circuiting discursive thought and to protect the mind from straying into, uh, into you could say, uh, yeah, discursive mentality. So they're all related because the tantras, which are the treatises, which they often include, I mean, they always include mantras um, as the means by which to um, progress on the path. And they also have depictions of, of often of yantras, which are the ways of concentrating the mind through uh, through vision, whereas mantras concentrate the mind through sound. And then the tantras are the, the kind of explanatory texts that do it through, through intellect. Hmm. With yantras, would that be any sort of like mechanistic practice that brings you closer to a state of consciousness? Um, well, the simplest example would be the Sri the, the, the yantra, meaning the sort of the, the, the core yantra that we is essentially the same as the the star uh what is it the not the star of david is it it's two intersecting triangles um and then okay. with an infinite kind of was that the, the star of solomon i'm not sure which but anyway it's a, it's a tri sure. there are two triangles intersecting and in the center of that is a dot that's the bindu so this is the the most quintessential of all yantras and the bindu become is the state of of infinite consciousness that arises when these triangles which can represent all forms of polarity the male being the the the, the upward pointing triangle the female being the downward pointing triangle um, spirit and matter all forms of, of polarity are expressed within those two uh, triangles and then with the Sri Yantra there they infinitely radiate out into to, to all space without in other words showing the interdependent which in Jungian terms is the interpenetration of opposites you know the conjunction of opposites signifying a mystical state um, so we you know we can look at those being right and left brain um, which of course as we see have increased interconnectivity under states as we were talking about before under certain influence of certain practices and substances can bring about that interconnectivity so yantra is just simply a way to to focus the mind um, and to in certain sense inspire the mind towards that infinite point 
if you will, of reference. And can point. other sort of, you mentioned mandalas as an example, can other sort of artistic pursuits such as painting and sketching be considered yantras? Yeah, well, mand mandalas are yantras. So all mandalas are yantras, but all yantras aren't mandalas necessarily because a yantra can take different forms, but they are typically all um, represented as circular um, spherical or, or in, in some way a device you know, in to center the mind. And mandalas certainly have that function, both in uh, the Hindu tradition and the Buddhist tradition. Um, and they, we also know increasingly from even uh, in neuroscience now that actually just contemplating and not uh, passively, in other words, observing and gazing at a mandala uh, has a kind of effect on the, on the visual cortex and therefore the, the neural functions uh, associated with the neural content, it brings about a state of harmony, it brings about a state of, of coherence. So mandalas, which we see you know, throughout um, the uh, Himalayan Buddhist world, painted on monasteries, all of these things are in, this, in the context of neuroaesthetics, uh, supports for certain shifts in consciousness that arise by contem contemplating and it's not in the sense of thinking about but just in the observation of, of, of perfect harmony the same way we would see that mandala you know in a snowflake in a you know in a water molecule in a, in a flower you know like blake's poem you know to see you know heaven and a grain of sand it's it's about when we look at the crystalline structure of reality it often takes this kind of form of a, of a yantra or a mandala and are yantras centering the mind through visual cues or can it also be done with auditory or other stimuli yantras basically refer to a visual the visual function and whereas then mantras are the are the sonic the, the sound function the sound of yeah so so yantras and mantras are mutually reinforcing so in other words you could stare at your yantra that you would make in sand you could make it in flower i mean traditional practices you would actually etch it out on the ground and it would become an object of contemplation and the making of it would also uh, serve that same function so as you were asking before about you know painting or constructing a yantra would absolutely in itself be a meditative ritual or rite and certainly it functions that way both in the hindu and uh, buddhist tantric traditions hmm. well thank you for that that was very enlightening you write a lot about esoteric healing and spiritual practices I would love to hear more about the Tibetan art of healing, if there's more to it than what we've already been talking about. Mm -hmm. Sure. So with the Tibetan art of healing, the Tibetan medicine is very, very interesting as a, a field. It's, in Tibetan, it's called Soarikpa. So it's the science of healing. And it's very, it's, it's based upon four tantras, what they call the medical tantras, the gyushi. So again, we're talking here about tantras, which have nothing to do with sexual practices, they're, they're treatises uh, of knowledge. And so the gyushi, gyu is the Tibetan word for tantra. Uh, these kind of appeared um, over time, but particularly from 12th century, uh, but then were in expanded versions in subsequent centuries. And what's very interesting about them is that they are consciously drawing, for, although they apocryphally say that they are direct teachings from the medicine Buddha, they also draw very, very, obviously from the Indian Ayurvedic tradition, as well as from Chinese medical uh, practices in terms of pulse reading and things like that. So as well as from uh, Hellenic uh, medical traditions in, in Persia. 
and as well as indigenous Bun, Tibet, indigenous Tibetan uh, native traditions of healing, including esoteric rituals, etc., for healing and pacifying disease. So what makes the Tibetan medical tradition very, very interesting is the fact that it drew from so many diverse sources in order to kind of create the best of brand, kind of re- um, best practices and then kind of give it a whole gloss by giving it a kind of mythical um, origins in this Tanaduk, which is the mandala, the kind of a celestial uh, paradise of the medical Buddha. So what's interesting about that to me is that we can see that the same process actually also happened in the Tibetan yogic tradition. That although the tradition itself will say, it, you know, all these practices came from greater India, it's very clear that a lot of the Tibetan yogic practices are, are, resemble much more uh, forms of Daoyin and Qigong in China than they do anything that we ever saw in India at any point. But that's, that's not really ever explored or looked into, certainly not acknowledged in the Tibetan by Tibetans because it kind of goes against the narrative that the whole Buddhist traditions in Tibet all came from India and they really did actively suppress the Chinese Chan tradition, um, which was the Zen tradition. Uh, there were debates at, in, in Tibet at 8th century as to whether they would go with the sudden enlightenment traditions of, of Zen, Chan, or with the gradual enlightenment uh, as it was at that time uh, being taught at, the, at Nalanda University, particularly in in India, and in, in terms of creating a theocratic state, it's much easier, much better to go with a text-based, um, gradual kind of uh, enlightenment system than it is to go with the radical Zen tradition, which was, as, as you might know from the Zen tradition itself, is a special transmission outside the scriptures. So in other words, it'd be much harder to con control it, and it wouldn't really serve the purposes of a state religion. So as a result, we get but at the same time, those practices of Zen and the practices uh, like the Shaiva Yogas were, you know, so effective and more to the point in many cases that they persisted, but they just had to kind of get, um, yeah, they got, how would you say, recontextualized and re represented so as to disguise their actual sources. That's, I think, fairly fairly clear just from the from the evidence and from the texts themselves. But to go back to the, so the, what really makes the Tibetan medical tradition so interesting is that they call it itself Chudmen, which means literally Chud meaning religion and medicine. So it's a, it's a religious medical tradition that's based entirely on um, Buddhism and tantric Buddhism since it appeared during that, that period. Um, but it also is very dedicated to uh, an understanding of the subtle energy body through, through a very sophisticated system of pulse diagnosis that, as I mentioned, lends itself both to, that we see parallels of both in Ayurveda as well as in, uh, in Chinese medicine. And it uses everything from, uh, from herbal and animal substances, the same way that Chinese Ayurvedic medicine does, um, as well as ritual procedures uh, in order to uh, to bring about an effect uh, to particularly when it comes to trying to mitigate what they call karmic illnesses illnesses in other words that are not um, let's say susceptible to to being effectively treated with 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 uh, herbs and uh, otherwise external therapies such as which they also have traditions of of cupping and uh, and acupuncture 
and things like that, Mark Sebastian, for example. So it really seems like at the geographic crossroads between India and China that as a culture, Tibetan medicine has really amalgamated some of the aspects of both of those, which between Ayurvedic and Chinese healing systems are two of the oldest and most profound and most complete medical systems on the planet. So mm -hmm. that bodes very well, I think, for Tibetan medicine, which has been able to integrate concepts of both and potentially other areas as well. If there have been any influences in Tibetan medicine from things such as Russian shamanism that you're aware of? Not aware of anything from Russian shamanism, but certainly from indigenous Tibetan Bun shamanism. Uh, there are certainly practices that are used to uh, combat, particularly, let's say, you know, to use contemporary example, pandemics, for example. So when there was less of a medical understanding of, of, of viruses and germ theory, let's say, uh, and the, but at the same time people were dying and contagion in the same way it wasn't during the period of the Black Plague in Europe. Uh, there were, you know, this was a time when you had to call in the sorcerers. <laughs> you couldn't do that in medieval Europe because, you know, that was the time also of burning gifted women in the name of calling, calling them witches. Uh, you know, inquisitions of one kind or another was, you know, a period of absolutely Christian fanaticism. Uh, and therefore anybody with, 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 you could say, exceptional powers uh, would be seen, a, you know, would be, would be burned at the cross, uh, burned at the stake rather, I'm sorry. Uh, burned at the stake, uh, burned at the cross might be the uh, an interesting way of looking at it. But no, but in, so in Tibet, you had still a, a very um, uh, an active tradition of oracles and sorcery, sorcery, you know, white sorcery and dark sorcery. It was so these things were were just brought in as what were called uh, taplam as a, or skillful means uh, in order to deal with um, adverse circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now you also have an interest in i'm just going to use a subtitle i saw on your website the alchemist wizards of burma <laughs> yes that was a I, what is that well that or was who a, are they yeah that's a really interesting tradition um and i became very very interested in that i, I did a, a degree in medical anthropology that was uh, based upon field research in burma among uh buddhist alchemists basically so there are monasteries they're monks but they don't they're not necessarily uh monks but for the majority the ones that i researched and worked with were in fact monks but they are practicing what really looks like medieval um in the sense of european uh medieval uh mercury-based alchemy uh, where they would have forges set up on the peripheries of the monastery where they would go with their dalong, which means literally an essence ball, which was made out of mercury that had been solidified. And then you would put it into a crucible and you bury it under the ground. And then you would sit uh, at, with, uh, at the forge um, as a meditative rite. And as you were pulling down the, um, the rope uh, that then would, then uh, uh, the bellows would then fan the fire, the coals that then would, combust um, the not combust but uh, you know create this tremendous heat inside the crucible where the mercury ball would then therefore be 
reworked and you would focus on that mercury ball as your object of concentration. So the forge was functioning in a sense as a yantra, as we talked about, as a device for focusing the mind. And you would do a very specific breathing. I mean, it, it varied according to different traditions in Burma, but the main one I studied, you would do a, a, a breathing practice. It was essentially in yogic tradition, they called bastrika uh, breathing. It means bellows breathing. So in the same, you were pulling down the, the rope and you go, <laughs> So you're doing an intensive, you know, Wim Hof type of, you know, uh, intensive breathing uh, in the sense of putting yourself into a hyperventilated state, focusing the mind on a, on a piece of solidified mercury underground. Then when it was taken out of the crucible, um, you would show it to the, the abbot of the monastery who would then cut it, it became a reflection of your own state of consciousness. And then when you would meditate, you'd put the mercury ball under your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did with great. Really? Yeah, 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 exactly. But the whole point was that before the mercury had reached the point where it was solidified like that, it was went through a three-part alchemical process where you had to capture, kill, and, uh, and transform and resurrect it so that it no, is no longer... And it's the same thing you have in Tibetan medicine. Mercury, the third, I think it is, the fourth of the the four medical tantras says mercury is the greatest poison and it is also the greatest medicine. So this is very much the same view. This is essentially part of what we could really call a tantric, Theravada tantric form of Buddhism that used to exist in Burma very clearly. We know up until the 11th century, the Arya tradition, uh, particularly in Northern Burma, that was then forcibly suppressed uh, by King Anawada, uh, Anuratta in the 11th century. And he said all Buddhists in uh, Burma must follow the Theravada, the, the Pali scriptures of the early tradition. So in other words, no Mahayana, no Tantrayana, but just Theravada. Uh, but the tradition continued underground in a certain sense through this esoteric practice of, uh, of mercury-based alchemy. What is the benefit of meditating with the mercury under the tongue? Uh, or the symbolism of it. Yeah, yeah, Paul, particularly it gives according to the you know, senior practitioners that I interviewed, I would pretend to put it there and I'd take it out very quickly and put it in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I was still, I still had my lingering uh, superstitions about the, the nerve, the toxicity of mercury. Well, but anyway, it, what they claim is the benefit is you, in the, they're practicing Vipassana meditation. So insight meditation that kind of goes beyond the Samatha um what we think of as mindfulness meditation today in a kind of secular Western context. Vipassana is this open presence consciousness ultimately that they believed would uh, allow them to go into altered states, including uh, teleporting, literally, uh, with the mind to a place called Mahamyai, which was the great forest. And the great forest was the place of these immortal alchemists. Because basically, the, one of the benefits of this uh, transformed mercury is it was an elixir of longevity. So some of these, the one monastery that I spent quite a bit of time at, they believed that their head abbot, you know, was well, the three main abbots had already retired up to a cave in the mountains called Nagamasa, the, 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 the cave of the female dragon. And um, they were believed to be already several several hundred years old <laughs> wow and they came down one they came down the full moon in february every year to kind of present themselves uh to the congregation but anyway otherwise the other was the people who were following this this method with the mercury was believed to lead to to health to greater health and to longevity 
but you know, of course, from our, our conventional Western perspective, we would see this as an extreme health hazard. But I didn't see any evidence at all of anybody with mercury toxicity. Uh, and I, you know, and certainly there were different ways in which the mercury substances were consumed. Sometimes it was under the tongue, just as a ball. Sometimes it was mixed with honey, and you would take small doses, micro doses of it, on a regular basis. And it was meant to lead to these kind of where meditation became more natural. You were almost like, and this was very true of probably the greatest of these alchemists. He just he seemed to be living in kind of two dimensions simultaneously. And uh, you know, kind of he was he was sought after as a kind of uh, yeah a seer, and uh, he yeah. I believe you know, and that was certainly his self, own sense that he was living kind of partially in that great forest and partly in our more conventional dimension. Yeah, Mercury is so interesting, and it, it has such a deep history in various indigenous medicines, as you spoke of, and it's it is this great poison, but it's also this great medicine. It's endemic in Ayurvedic medicine at least in the past. Has your perspective on it at all changed now through your exposure to it with these cultures? Is it something that you do see the the longevity type of benefits in it and other health benefits? I, I think it potentially has. I had planned to be back this last winter in Burma, kind of pursuing this again, um, but wasn't obviously because of COVID able to do that. And now it's tragic what's happening, of course, in Burma today now with this the February 4th coup. Uh, we don't know when all of that will end. But my experience with the mercury is that, let's just say it's a suspension of... of <laughs> belief or disbelief um it's an open question in my mind uh i have a lot of the mercury medicines that some of these alchemists have made um and it can be tested easily and shown to have high levels of mercury in it as do some of the very um most powerful healing uh pills that what they call the rinch and rilbu the, the precious pills in the tibetan tradition they also have very high mercury content um and dalai lama takes those regularly <laughs> i remember i mean i just mentioned that first once in an interview with him that was recorded i asked him i said about the mercury in tibetan medicine was it something to be worried about and he he said he says oh he, he was he, he liked the question because he said oh many of my western doctor friends they say very worried about you know uh, mercury in tibetan medicine and he said but you know therefore i've, I've been tested and my levels of mercury very high he said you know he has this very interesting but i think <laughs> no problem with my mind <laughs> but anyway that was his conclusion uh that the way that the meta that the mercury is is worked with which is analogous in the burmese tradition and the tibetan tradition in terms of the purification as they call it of mercury which means basically it's transformation from a poison into a elixir uh is used in 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 both uh ways and as we as you also noted it's it's very commonly used in in certain ayurvedic and siddha medicine traditions from south india and i've taken all of these taken a lot <laughs> but uh, yeah um hmm. i think that these things have been used for long enough to i've never seen any indication of acute poisoning or chronic poisoning um and yeah it's just again as i said i, I have no conclusive view i mean what we certainly what we don't see is we know that there were chinese emperors who who consumed mercury and died very prematurely uh as a result you know 
hoping that these things were, were going to be preserving their health and doing just the opposite. Right. Yeah. So you have a forthcoming book or have you already finished this book, Drinking the Milk of the Dragons? No, that's the one that I'm working on. And in a certain sense, it's suspend. It's in suspension simply because to be able to do it, I have a lot of my earlier research, but I had planned to go back very specifically with one alchemist to go up to the great forest because he said there are four gates. So it was going to be very much based as a kind of tr on a travelogue with my previous, let's say, work to, in, for my degree in medical anthropology as the foundation for it, but it was going to take more of the form that uh, my book, The Heart of the World did in a sense of looking for this great forest in Burma. Well, I look forward to it. I hope that comes to fruition for you. And this is going to be basically telling your experiences journeying with these alchemical wizards. That would be, yes. that would be the idea. Mm -hmm. What is the milk of the dragons? Is okay. that mercury? Yes. So literally it's called Nagamasa. It's, um, no, uh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Nagamasa is the, the name of the mountain, but the, uh, Nagakwe, this, the literally means dragon's milk. And that's the, a euphemism that's given to, to, to describe mercury. Um, because the dragons are again are very volatile, uh, dangerous elemental beings, uh, which can be understood on multiple levels. But the, but they give there's this nourishment that comes from the the nourish that you could say the nourishment of danger uh, could be the dragon's milk. Yeah, how 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 danger okay. can nourish us if we know how to engage with it properly. Well, I am really looking forward to reading that, and to circle back around to the heart of the world, if you have even 1% of the adventure in this forthcoming book that you had in this past one. And I just want to let reader or let listeners know a bit about what is in that book. The tales that you tell of your experiences are hair raising. You, you talk about leeches literally raining down from the forest canopy to the point where you and all of your fellow journeyers were covered basically in head to toe including under your clothes like that's <laughs> and again you write about it like yeah it was a bit of an inconvenience yeah well it was <laughs> I mean, and the giant stinging nettle leaves <laughs> yeah yeah i think the point was it literally as i think the whole key to traveling in in this place this this hidden land which is notorious for its danger you know for its adversities is that, again, it's a Tibetan concept called Danang. Danang means pure vision. So if you can go into these states that would be otherwise considered to be at the very least unpleasant, if not completely purgatorial, if you go in with vision, with a kind of vision of paradise, uh, the, then then you embrace the hardship. And it's and again, I guess a lot of that came for me out of rock climbing. You know, the more and more, the more and more difficult and dangerous it became, the more gleeful and excited to become by the by the danger itself. And so, yeah, with the leeches and the endless mud, the endless, you know, torrential rains, you just, it's about embracing adversity as a, as a, you could say almost as a spiritual psychological discipline. I love that paradox that you write about in the book because every time the situation turns really dire, you kind of remind the reader that this was an opportunity for you to deepen your experience and gain more from it. This was the practice. The more dire, the better the practice, the greater the outcome. 
Mm -hmm. That that was um, certainly the view. <laughs> One has to take towards it. Absolutely. Tell me about your relationship with the Dalai Lama. Uh, the Dalai Lama, I had the great fortune. When did I first meet the Dalai Lama? Um, can't remember it was what back in the early 90s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, if not, I know it was the 80s for sure. Uh, it was 1980s, and I was running for many years an American college semester abroad program in Nepal, uh, where students transferred in from various colleges or universities across the states. And they it was a three and a half month college semester program, and they could choose either to study Tibetan language or, or Nepali language. And they also live with either Nepali or Tibetan families. And uh, then we had kind of various and then did study projects based upon that, et cetera. And we also had a cultural tour that I eventually organized that where the students who were studying Tibetan brought them to Dharmasala, India, which is where the Dalai Lama is based. And I had organized through the office of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I think this was probably from 1986 or 85 that that started. Um, to have an audience for the students, there about in this case eight, eight or nine students, I think, with with the Dalai Lama, and that, and I also requested in the context. This is before he got the Nobel Prize, so it was it was a little bit more accessible back in those days. But I also organized to have a private audience with His Holiness directly following the one where I brought the students. And I did, that was twice a year. So for several years, I had the great fortune of going for the fall semester and spring semester, bringing students up to Dharamsala. We'd have like our hour or so, you know, uh, audience with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And then I got to stay back and just meet with him privately <laughs> for quite substantial amounts of time because he somehow or other, um, he was intrigued by my, <laughs> you know, because my questions were like, well, you know, I and particularly when I had the opportunity to take a semester off from the work I was doing. I said I was going to go, uh, you know, to, to do that as a meditation retreat uh, the whole fall semester. And I said, what, you know, and I would ask him, you know, what would be the most effective, how can I get the most benefit from the shortest amount of time? Um, and I, you know, I'll do anything. I said, you know, I just want to get, I want to really taste the essence. I'm not interested in the gradual path. I'm not interested in monasticism. And a lot of times that, you know, we know with monasticism, they have to fill in the time, you know, you have to give rituals and practices for a lot of these young monks to kind of keep them occupied. But I was interested in the direct path, the quick path. And so the fact that I was kind of open about that, he, he, he found quite delightful. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I, um, and as a result, he, it was an extraordinary situation. So, I, you know, uh, where, yeah. Uh, and then I'd go back the next time and he asked about practices. So we had this, and then when I started writing books, then he very kindly, um, you know, wrote the forewords and introductions to a number of my books, the one on Tibetan medicine, the one on the heart of the world, as well as the one on, uh, tantric wall paintings in the Lukang temple in Tibet. So that was the relationship. And it was really wonderful because it allowed me to gain insights into the innermost heart of the tradition that are not commonly, let's say, presented when the tradition is presented in its uh, kind of an outer public way, let's say. So it was really yeah, a great opportunity to have had that kind of close contact. What is one of the most impactful experiences you have had with him? 
Well, the the most impactful, I mean, as I said, they were all precious in their varying ways, but I would suppose that it was that time when I said, told him, and that was after several preceding meetings that I, in the past, that I was going to take three months, a three month meditation retreat. Um, and uh, that I had the opportunity to do that, you know, in a cave and high up in the mountains. And um, what would be the most effective you know, what, what should I practice? Since I told you my own teacher, Prater Embershay, it said, do what you already know. <laughs> so for my, uh, this was for the um, second cave retreat. And then this is when he gave, he told me of a practice and um, gave me a letter to take back to his teacher, uh, Dingo Kensi Embershay in Nepal, to give me the transmission of that practice that I should do. And that, that caused a real stir because I had never heard of the practice. It was a very, very esoteric, very advanced practice. Normally you would have had to do all kinds of other practices first. Um, but as they said, because the Dalai Lama had in a certain sense directed them to get them, they had to do it. So I, it just made, it put me in awe of his ability to see my nature, I would say. Because this was, I, I, I won't talk about the practice that it wouldn't really be appropriate, but it's the point was that this is not one that he would ever talk about. He would never see him talking about it in a public discourse in any way. And yet it's fit me. It was just exactly what I wanted and what I needed. Let's just say it, it could only be practiced in an extremely remote wilderness place. And he just said, the only condition here is make sure that nobody sees you or they'll think you're, they'll think you're crazy. <laughs> That's all I'll say about it. But that just suited me perfectly. And it was so powerful and so effective. That, Can you, and, I'm sorry, you weren't going to, I was just curious about the benefit of that practice for you. I would say it was the most beneficial practice I ever did within uh, the Tibetan Buddhist world view. And it, you know, there are it's written about now. It used to be very, very highly um, secretive, the traditions about this, but it's called Korde Rushin. It means literally, and I, so I will mention it because even in my most recent book, uh, Tibetan Yoga Principles and Practices, which was published that came out two years ago now, um, I write about it there. It's really one of the first books that does describe what is considered to be traditionally the preliminary practices for what's called Dzogchen, the great perfection, which is ultimately a practice that doesn't require anything more than just this recognition of the non-dual nature of reality. And yet the Korde Rushin practices, which are effectively a form of psychodrama, in which you act out different imaginal states in order to distinguish between um, the egoic persona uh, and the essence of a mind in its self-transcendent state, um are considered to be if it's not if you're not sufficiently prepared or if you don't have right guidance you can kind of go crazy uh, but if you do do them it's the most effective and powerful way to go beyond all of our conditioned ideas of who and what we are and what's possible and i think and the reason that i did choose to write about it because also the Dalai Lama encouraged me to um is that it it's it's not it might seem even remote and strange more in a Tibetan context than it would in our own contemporary Western modern educational context. You know, we do theater classes, you know, in high school and college where we act out and we improvise 
different identities, you know, and it's that psychodrama, which we know to have therapeutic benefits as well. It's also something we use in, in, in theater, something that actually comes out of a Dionysian tradition as a, as a form of self-transcendence. So this is what I found fascinating about it is it just because of the states that arose and using them, and I'd done that in college earlier too. And so I saw the continuity and I also saw how powerful it was as a way of just leaping out of your own and any kind of mental state. And you could just change your, you could state change, you know, in, 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 you know, just through these very, very micro practices, ultimately, you just take that what you've learned through it and apply it in any chance where you want to state change. And then, you know, you're just unlimited that way. <laughs> you have fully piqued my curiosity. So you're acting out psychodramas on your own, in, in this case, because you took it away for three months. You said earlier that done under proper guidance, hmm. it's kind of safe, but you were all alone, weren't you? I was alone, but I guess he must have determined that I was psychologically mature enough to, to handle it. And there were outer inner secret levels of this so-called Cordyrushan practice. So for that first retreat, I just did the outer and the inner, and then I had to do a second retreat in another cave the next year to do the so-called secret and innermost secret practices of that same state where you're, again, you're acting out different realities and you, in a sense, go out of yourself. It's an ecstatic state. Um, in the literal sense of what the word ecstatic means, to step outside the self. Yeah. And it's, um, I think, very, very powerful, very relevant. I mean, of course, it takes, you know, it's not any, you know, those were back in the days when it was sort of easy enough to rearrange one's life to, to do such things as taking three months and disappearing. It was before internet, it was before iPhones, it was before email. Um, it sort of seems hard to imagine doing such things now. Um, I'm imagining you yelling at cave walls. Is that kind of accurate? You were well. You act. You, you start out working with the the six realms, which are depicted in the Tibetan Wheel of Life. Let's say, for example, these are traditional Buddhist teaching about the different uh, states in which we might find ourselves uh, reborn into. Um, if we are under the sway of ignorance, greed, and aggression, we might find ourselves in a hell realm. We might find ourselves an animal realm or a jealous god realm or back in the human realm or in the god realm uh because of good karmic that we've or the jealous gods who are always trying to you know uh get into the god realm but are just perpetually driven by their their greed and anxiety that they're not going to get there and all of these different realms have their own psychological um attributes but the point is that you know, if you look at that that way, rather than these as actually being different dimensions into which we're literally reborn, if we understand them cycle as psychological states through which we can cycle in the course of a single day or a few hours, you know, we can be in hell, we can be in heaven um, very easily, depending on you know secondary circumstances. So this these practices are about showing how those states that happen to us because of secondary circumstances can be actually conjured through our imagine, creative imagination and you know we can snap out of them in a moment uh, also through uh, that recognition that these are just states that actually are not are impermanent they change and so by working with these states we're no longer under this we're no longer conditioned by external events but we're actually liberated by our internal uh, state of awareness that sounds like an incredibly empowering tool to be able to reframe the victim state to 
then take full accountability and be able to state change into something different, that, not that, to be affected by the external. That's exactly it. And it's, again, one can apply, you know, once one's done these practices and you know it, it's just something you can, it becomes a micro practice. You can apply in any, wow. you know, it's like you can kind of, I can be, you know, maybe get terrible news or something through email, whatever, you know, you just go out into the forest and rather, you know, you take a walk is always going to be rebalancing, but if you can do it by just sort of, you know, entering into a volitional, it's, you know, it's, it's shamanic uh, practice as well, really, uh, this idea of state changing, shamans are doing this all the time, you know, they're becoming their spirit animal, and where you find strength, power, and resilience, you know, you can be your eagle, you can be your, you know, you can be your red deer, you can be your, uh, your bear, you know, whatever it is yeah. that gives you a sense of uh, identity outside your uh, human persona. Uh, we find power and animation in, uh, in nature this way. Oh, so very interesting. Dan writes about, Dan Reed writes about you guys becoming connected through basically excursions that you lead. Are you still doing adventures and excursions that you're taking people on? Maybe not currently in this year, but in general, is it something? In general, in general yes, I certainly would have been, uh, you know, this year and last year had, uh, had COVID not intervened. Yeah. Uh, the last few years, where I've mostly been, I mean, where Dan joined me, which was on this wonderful trip to Mount Kailash in, in, in Tibet. And I did try to lead, a, the last trip that I tried to lead actually was there to, was that 2019, I guess it was in September. Uh, and unfortunately, I had a, a wonderful group um, and we were all set to go there. I flew all the way to Chengdu in China to meet them. But I unfortunately, it was just after my book had been, the Tibetan yoga book uh, had been launched and there had been a big uh, profile of it and an interview with me in the South China Morning Post. This happened simultaneously with the, um, the, the um, protests that were happening. And somehow or other who, you know, it makes sense to me now, they saw this article, they saw that they interviewed me about my association with the Dalai Lama, et cetera. So, so my, uh, my permit to, to visit, to go to Tibet oh, no. was revoked. You know, I could go to China, but I, they wouldn't let me into Tibet. So the whole group had to go without me. And I fortunately oh. had a very, very good, competent uh, assistant uh, leader because it was a big group of over 20 people. So she had, she had to handle the whole thing. But, uh, but normally, yes. And then Bhutan, I used to, to bring groups uh, twice a year sometimes to, to do yeah. Buddhist. And Ian, does Red Panda still exist? No, Red Panda. I love, was, Red... I love the motto of confuse and elude. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That was my brother who actually developed the motto for that one. Uh, yeah, no, Red Panda Expeditions was, was all about uh, confusing and eluding and that was a way of trying to get permits for parts of tibet that <laughs> would never ever be able to get permits for yeah. so that no longer exists no it was it was more for fun uh yep. it, it was something that would set up provisionally in order to um confuse and elude the yes. uh, uh, authorities let's just say who knew, <laughs> who 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 one could not be transparent with let's say mm-hmm Mm -hmm. incredible stuff and i can't thank you enough for taking the time to share some of these beautiful adventures and wisdom practices and 
your journey with psychoactive plants, the, the whole gamut. It's really, you've got so much to offer. Where can people learn more about the work that you're doing and potentially connect with you? Well, my summer project, I've just finished some major other more sort of academic writings that I had to do, one of which actually is, is sort of really, it's on, on SOMA. Uh, I'll just mention this uh, before I answer your, your question, just because I think yes. it's, it's a very, it's one of my next real major projects, along with the, uh, the Drinking the Milk of Dragons. But I, in research that I was doing in India, uh, now, when would it have been? It would have been in November, December 2019. I was I was visiting some of these tantric uh, power places, these these uh, pitas as they're called, uh, which were sacred both to the Hindu and Buddhist tantric traditions. And in one of these, in Tarapit, uh, sacred to the goddess Tara, came across a living tradition of uh, of, so, of soma ceremonies that were still being done. And this was was extraordinary because, as far as we know, there's so much research that's been done on soma what what is the the course psychoactive substance involved but we know it's the earliest described um psychoactive substance in the earliest um work of literature essentially which was the rig veda you know diving back thousands of years uh in the uh the, the vedic tradition in india so that is extraordinary and that's again where i would have been this year uh researching that uh but i'm now writing uh an academic paper that'll be published in uh, Massachusetts, uh, MIT Press on a global history of psychedelics. Uh, so looking at really? a, a living Soma cult in India and then framing that, of course, within the uh, the long quest to understand, you know, what Soma is and what were the rituals connected with its use. So this is, a, you know, again, it's not showing that this is exactly what was perhaps done in Vedic times thousands of years ago, but it's certainly a living tradition that was considered highly secret, but I had, anyway, just by by great karmic grace uh, was introduced to this ritual. Uh, so other than that, and these are kind of things that I will publish, uh, uh, well, they will be published, but I will also post them. I have a website, ianbaker.com, which is uh, I've had for years, but I've never done anything with it. It's, a, it's in holding pattern, uh, but it does exist. So if people uh, were go to, to www.ianbaker.com as a website, uh, and an email, just ian at ianbaker.com. That's the easiest way uh, to reach me. Uh, but what happens now with that website, which I will be completely reworking and actually developing over the summer when I have a break, uh, it's currently it goes to ianbakerjourneys.com, which is a sub, um, a, um, let's say a, a sub website of a, of a previous one that I had. So that can be ignored, but in any case, it does take one to, the contact email of ian at ianbaker.com. And so certainly the hope is to have a lot more on the website in terms of the kind of things that you're, you know, which are very kindly invited me to participate in and your uh, Silas Wolf um, podcast, but other kinds of programs and activities, which will include in the future, both these kinds of adventures, um, you know, such as the one I shared with uh, Brew Joy and Dan Reed to Mount Kailash in Tibet, and yes. as, well, as well as Dharma Adventures in Bhutan, and as well as Alchemical Journeys in Burma, all these kind of things, which are kind of, we I used to call them travel seminars, because they were educational experiences that were very much based at the same time on travel experiences, and they also, many of them had you know, very much a, a, a spiritual yogic component to them. 
Mm. Well, I look forward to seeing that come together and reading some of those adventures. Thank you. This has been great. Really have enjoyed getting to know you. I feel like I've learned and expanded so much just from this interview. So hopefully the listeners also benefit from it. I'm sure they will. Well, I'm really grateful to for the invitation to to join you here and also for your questions, which led me to to tell stories that I've never told anyone. <laughs> I mean, in this kind of context before. So I, I, I'm really grateful to the questions. And I think that's, and I'll just, just end with that little note because it's very interesting. The tantras, uh, both in the Shaiva tradition and the Buddhist tradition, they're all, most of them are framed as questions and answers. So they're treatises based on questions and answers. And I've always found in my experience, if I've ever had to give a talk, it's in, in answering the questions that I feel the really essential things come out. So this is why I'm really grateful for, you know, the work that you're doing both on Silash Wolf as well as in your Pacific Rim um, podcast, because I think by answering, uh, by asking penetrating questions uh, to the guests that you invite, I think so much can come out that possibly all of those guests maybe have never really had the platform or opportunity or the challenge to answer and address in any other context. Well, thank you so much. You actually just answered a mystery in my head that I never even realized existed, but in, in the classical Chinese texts of Chinese medicine, many of them are written in the question-answer format, and I had never really stopped to consider why that is. So you've just given me some insight into that. So thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, very good. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ian. And good luck with all of your writing. And I hope your adventures are able to resume soon so you can get back to your research on those. Well, thank you very, very much. And I'll look forward to staying in touch and listening to many, many of your podcasts, which I now have a chance to, uh, to catch up on. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Salish Wolf with Ian Baker. To learn more about Ian and his explorations and writings, visit ianbaker.com. That's I-A-N-B-A-K-E-R.com. And look for his books at your local bookseller. For a first-hand account of Journeys with Ian, check out the memoir entitled Shots from the Hip from our mutual friend and truth seeker, Daniel Reed. Please visit anchorpointexpeditions.com for information on my men's leadership retreats and personal development coaching. Stay tuned for the announcement of 2021 retreats during which I take men on purpose-driven adventures along British Columbia's wild coast. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcys. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contributions to the show. For episodes on holistic health and sustainability, please tune in to my other podcast, Pacific Rim College Radio at pacificrimcollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for my upcoming podcast, Takea Chronicles, featuring the inspirational story of the lone wolf that mesmerized the city of Victoria by taking up residence on a tiny archipelago off the city's coastline. There, Takea thrived showing us even the most unlikely is possible. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I am Todd Howard, signing off.